This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad-free and bonus episodes, patron-only content, workshops, panels, and much more. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Otherwise, we'd like to give a shout out to our newest patrons, Anastasia, Eve, Faye, Yatong, Ina, Hannah, and Lewis. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Hello and welcome to our first special live bonus episode of Coffee and Cocktails with Dr. Ann Wand. Today we'll be talking with serial entrepreneur and startup founder Brady Simpson who will be talking with us today about entrepreneurship, startup advice, and how to transition into the tech industry. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Mm, pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Brady, would you like to start? Sure. So I am having a little uh, Nespresso for my oh, morning coffee. How Clooney of you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, my name is Brady Simpson. Uh, I'm a two to three time founder and current product manager at uh, LinkedIn. Live in San Mateo, California, and uh, excited to, to chat about founders and researching. Cool. I'm excited to learn from you. Uh, so I was going to, for our listeners, could you tell us what got you interested in becoming an entrepreneur and what led you to start your own businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, growing up, I had some you know family friends who were kind of doing their own thing. And I saw some of the flexibility and, and kind of the lifestyle around it. Um, so that was one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, I've always just had like a, a desire to kind of venture off and, and build my own company. I'm not sure if that's the case for everybody. I don't know if it's like something you're, you're kind of born with or you, you learn over time or it can be learned. Um, but for me, there's like this draw. And I think a lot of it comes from seeing other successful people who are kind of self-made. Um, but, um, you know, my first business, I started when I was in Virginia Tech. And, you know, that's why the caveat I said, okay, I've started like two or three companies is because the first one was like, very garage bandy, you know, really like bare bones, you know, kind of barely had any success. Um, but I really loved the freedom and the flexibility and the creativity uh, of being able to kind of do my own thing. Hmm. Well, could you um, kind of give us a bit more detail what it's like to start and run a business as opposed to working as an employee for a business? Yeah, so um, I can tell you about my experience. So in my experience, you know, what it's like is um, there's a there's kind of a, an image I have in my mind. It's a little bit of an analogy or a cliche. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of building the railroad track as the train car is, is kind of going down it. Um, or like, you know, the other one where you're assembling the plane as you're, you know, falling down. Um, so you're kind of having to do all of these different things on the fly and you never have enough data. You never have enough time to make decisions. Um, but for me, what's really interesting is, you know, you really need to kind of be a jack of all trades right? You have to do, you know, depending on the business and the business model, right? But you're going to have to figure out the fundraising, you're going to have to figure out engineering, hiring, customer, uh, you know, uh, management, you're going to have to do product, 
whatever it is you're doing, there's going to be a million things. And, um, you know, you can't do them all, obviously, but it's really important that, you know, you're able to um, at least have some sort of competency in each of these kind of different pillars so that uh, when you, I mean, you don't even have to have competency initially, you just have to be willing to do it and willing to try. Um, and then later on, you know, you can hire out and kind of fill in those gaps. Uh, but there will be a lot of different things that you're going to have to do and you just need to dive in. So for my first startup, I had no idea what we were doing, obviously. Um, and it was, you know, a challenge because, you know, we were young, we were in college, we didn't have any money. Um, we didn't exactly have any kind of role models or, or, you know, have great resources to learn about starting a startup. So we were kind of just fumbling everything along. Um, for my second company, I had already been in the workforce and, you know, kind of seen, uh, you know, some successful friends do companies and had really been researching online and watching videos, et cetera. So I had a lot more knowledge, um, but it was still, you know, incredibly difficult. Uh, but I would say, you know, at a high level, the, the best, you know, kind of way to encapsulate what that feels like is really, um, you know, kind of being a jack of all trades, master of none, in my opinion. Now, there are certain companies, and many of them do extremely well, where, you know, one of the founders has high domain expertise and is very specialized and, you know, has a lot of skill and talent in one specific area. These companies do extremely well, too. And what typically happens in those companies is you know, that person uh, might be one of the kind of technical co-founders, if you will, and then partner up with somebody or several people who can kind of handle some of these other aspects like, you know, sales and marketing and fundraising and, you know, hiring and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's multiple different flavors of it. And at a high level, you know, it's, it's really significantly varied the amount of stuff that you have to do early on. You can't really just, it's hard to just really focus and narrow down on kind of one thing. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I found within starting my own business, I mean, I've, I launched in late March, early April, and I have had to learn a lot in a really short period of time. So I've learned um, what my strengths are and I'm most definitely have learned what my weaknesses are. But the other thing I've learned is the things I thought were my weaknesses, I'm actually not that bad at. <laughs> so, but it's because I had no choice. Like I had to learn it. So, uh, but like even things like analytics, um, it's not that I don't understand the analytics, not like I don't see it. But, um, you know, I think trying to get the name out and the branding, um, unless you're like a marketing specialist, which I'm realizing I'm not, um, it's it's like a crash course. And I think you make a really good point is that you're having to wear all these hats and sometimes you just want to wear like three hats, but you don't have a choice. You have to like wear all these hats at once. So um, I think that's a really good point. Um, you said, we were, when we were talking before we did the recording, um, you talked about how researchers and academics can make really great start founders. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? 
Yeah. So a little bit of a typo there. Startup founders. Um, Fine. Fine. That was my bad. Um, Yeah, I I do think researchers can make great startup founders. And here's why. Um, And, you know, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong as well, because you were kind of much closer to this than than I ever was. But, you know, you're working through a hypothesis, right? You're trying to figure out, like, does something exist here? Like, can we make something work? Right. And there's a lot of unknowns in that. I mean, when you're thinking about research and and kind of that whole space, the answers aren't known. And for startups and for building product and, you know, all these kind of different companies, um, that's the same thing, right? You have to kind of go into something completely blank and try to make something work. So I think that's one reason, right, is, you know, um, testing and validating a hypothesis and being able to, like, navigate through all that complexity. The other thing is, you know, you have to build a community, you have to talk to people, you have to actually go out and do this research. So um, when you are in a corporate environment, um, there's not quite as much of that, and you have a lot of support. You know, you've got you've got budgets, you've got money, you've got specialized people who have been doing this for years, if not decades, in marketing and in customer development and user research and all these different things. So you have a lot of tools at your disposal in a corporate environment. Um, but as a startup founder, you really don't. And you know, you have to be scrappy. You have to figure out a way to kind of do all of that research. So um, I think talking to people, creating a community is something that, you know, might come a little naturally to some researchers. And even if it's a community of your peers, right, um, that's okay too, because all of that kind of compounds and helps you move the business forward. Um, And I, I think beyond that, you know, researchers like, you know, really do need to deeply understand the problem that they're trying to to understand and solve for, right? And that kind of manifests through all those kind of previous points. But at the end of the day, you know, with a startup, nobody really cares how many emails you've sent or, you know, kind of some of these other ancillary things. What actually matters is the kind of output and and what you end up doing with that company. And um, I think, you know, with research, it's sort of similar in that, you know, no one really cares like all of the experiments that you ran and and how late you stayed up at night and, and all of these different things. What they really care about is like, what you were able to achieve and what you learned and, and kind of what your, uh, your read on the situation is. Um, and so you can almost think of like the research product as like similar to maybe an output or a, a physical product or a digital product or whatever it might be, right? And the steps that you take to get to one are actually not too dissimilar uh, from the other. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I know that within the work that I'm doing, um, I did feel like there was a lot of overlap because, like you said, uh, when you're working in an academic environment or a research environment, you're trying to fill a gap that's missing. And so when you're thinking about your product idea, 
you have to look at what is at your disposal, what is available, and you have to do a lot of research. And then within that, you go, okay, there seems to be something missing. How can my product fulfill that need? Um, And I also think you make another really good point in that it's not contingent on the amount of hours you spent per week, but what is what is important is the impact. And, um, you know, how is how is your product going to solve this need, regardless of how much time you spent working on it or what have you? Yeah, I think just to kind of go into that a little bit deeper, there's a couple other quick things to mention. One is around like, you know, you mentioned the hours, right? Um, I think in academia and in research, you know, you're motivated to put in that work, right? And and because it's your kind of own original research and, you know, there are all these unknowns, right? And so you, you need to, you know, work nights and weekends. You need to really kind of burn the midnight oil. Um, and I won't speak for everybody, but hopefully that's pretty fulfilling, right? And maybe not all of it you absolutely love. Um, but you know, that aspect is really important, kind of having the passion to do something. And I think part of that is because it's, you know, something that you're, you're really spearheading and kind of owning. Um, and then the other piece is also around like fundraising, right? In, in academia and research, uh, you know, a lot of people have to, to, to try and get grants, right? To fund some of this research. And that's really challenging. You know, you've got to sell your product. You've got to sell the vision of this of this research or whatever it is you're trying to figure out. And there's going to be a lot of no's, right? And it's really hard. Um, and that is very similar to the startup world, especially the first time you're kind of starting out. You know, they always say it takes 100 no's to get one yes. That's a lot of rejection. Um, and so I think, you know, folks in the academic community are used to, you know, you always hear of like the thesis paper getting like heavily marked up or rejected or whatever it might be. You know, people are uh, a little more, you know, used to, to kind of that vibe, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think we, we learn um, some healthy, maybe not so healthy coping mechanisms, but um, we do we do find ways to just sort of deal with it. We'll have to share notes. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe after the recording. <laughs> uh, so could you tell us a bit more about your experience in the tech industry for those who may be unfamiliar? Yeah, sure. So um, my experience really started uh, in 2014. So this was when I first got the job at Facebook. Um, I had been in DC for a few years working at various startups, but they were not really comparable to to Facebook, which is more like at the time and and still now, like one of the you know fo- you know bleeding edge kind of consumer um, internet companies. And you know the reason why they got there is because they had a lot of great people who knew what they were doing. So I really felt like um, I was able to learn. Okay, what 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 makes a great kind of tech company? Um, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, one, you know, sorry about my that. Experience, hey doggies, um, it's really you know different for every company. But one thing is <clears throat> there's not a whole lot of um, kind of onboarding support, or at least there wasn't at the time, you know, you hear another cliche, you get thrown in the deep end. Mm. Um, that's kind of what happens, right? You, 
you know, you, you join the company and at least at Facebook, there's not kind of any, um, anyone telling you what to do, right? There are no deliverables that are assigned to you. Essentially, you have to kind of, you have a role, you have your, you know, your kind of domain, the team that you work with, et cetera, but you have to then go figure out how to have impact. And I think that's the same at a lot of tech companies where, you know, you're not really going to be completely assigned deliverables and being told what to do. Uh, you have to, to go out and figure out what to do and, and how to make sense of it. Um, and then just from like a, you know, pace perspective, the pace and the kind of uh, speed at which things get done at specifically like tech companies, internet technology companies, um, might be a lot higher than, you know, in academia and, and definitely in a lot of other fields, right? Um, and that can be hard for some people to get used to. Um, you know, there's just a, a lot of kind of at stake and there's a lot of pressure, even if it's like a fun environment with like, you know, great coworkers and, and fun stuff to work on. There's still a lot of kind of pressure to, to get stuff done. Um, so that can kind of take some some getting used to for sure. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. So if we could scroll back just a little bit, uh, you have created or you, and you're still uh, a founder of two companies at the moment, SimTech and Peanut. Could you tell us a bit about both of those companies and what led you to create each of them? Yeah, so let's start with SimTech, which was the, um, the the kind of first real company I had, I had created. So I was at Facebook. I'd been there for three years. And, um, you know, I just felt like, um, at least in my role, I had kind of played it out and, and there wasn't really much growth for me there anymore. And I started to get this feeling that, like, I wanted to, to create a company and build a product on my own. Cause I was really interested in like building product and I was trying to do that at Facebook, but I was kind of limited. And, uh, you know, stepping back to think about, okay, well, like how did the Genesis for SimTech come about? Um, I was, I went to Virginia tech, you know, and I kind of lived through those, those kind of shootings and had seen kind of all of that, that had happened. And I realized like, in the firearms community, you know, safety is really important, obviously, but there wasn't any product that made the place that firearms are stored kind of more connected, right? And I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, you know, for some of these, these shootings that have happened in the U.S., um, sometimes it's been a family member who has kind of stolen the guns from the father or the mother. Right. Um, I think in the, in the Sandy Hook shooting, it was, it was a son who, who stole an AR 15 from the mother and, you know, massacred all these kids, just awful. Right. And so I was thinking, well, is there anything, you know, I could do to kind of help some of that and bring more connected awareness to that space, very niche, like super random. I'm not, you know, a gun owner myself or anything. Um, but I am interested in solving real problems. And so, you know, I thought about it and the more I, I kind of thought about that space, the more I thought I could build something in it. And so um, while I was at Facebook, I told myself I was going to de-risk 
kind of this opportunity and try to fundraise and do all of that before I quit my job. Um, you can probably guess that that didn't happen. I went to investors and they're all like, you know, you're still working for somebody else. Like, get out of here. You know, they, they wanted to see real commitment and they didn't want somebody who kind of like had their toe in the corporate world and, and kind of one foot in to the, to a startup. Um, because if they're betting on you, they want to make sure you're fully committed and, you know, they have the highest chance of success. And that means you spending all your time on it. And so what I did was I developed a prototype while I was still employed at Facebook and I got it signed off by their legal team and there was no conflict of interest. So they said, cool, as long as you're not, you know, interfering with your work, you can kind of do this. Um, and so I de-risked it that way, I built this prototype while I was still employed, you know, used some of the money from, from every paycheck to be able to pay for all the hardware and the software that I, you know, needed to build, et cetera. And uh, really started doing research, trying to validate, you know, is this thing that I'm building and this kind of problem that I think we're going to be solving uh, a real one? And would people pay for this more importantly? got a lot of great feedback on my super janky, poor, crappy initial prototypes. And uh, it was at that point where I decided, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go all in. And I did. And, um, you know, raised money, you know, focused for the next three years on building and launching the product. And, um, yeah, I don't know how much detail you want it to want to go in there, but uh, it's uh, right now doing better than ever. We're working on the second generation um, product. And just for, for folks to know what it is, it's a cellular based motion sensor that you place inside of any safe. And then when that safe is accessed, it simply sends a um, push notification and a text message to anyone who's subscribed to get alerts. So it's really about awareness. It's not necessarily going to prevent uh, any access, but it kind of helps with peace of mind and awareness uh, to know if if somebody uh, is kind of going in that space. And you had said that you could apply this to those who aren't gun owners. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So we have people using it for all types of different things because at the end of the day, it's just a cellular based kind of motion sensor. So you know, people are using it for storage, uh, storage units that they might have some of their valuables stored in, you know, a few miles away from their house. Um, we have people using it at a kind of a second home where there's no electricity or, you know, there's no Wi-Fi, et cetera, um, all kinds of different things. But we specifically kind of focused on this one niche uh, vertical because there really aren't any any options in that space, but also, um, you know, at the end of the day, I wanted to to kind of uh, have some sort of real impact there. Yeah, and I think it also gets to this point um, about the importance of pivoting when you have a product. Is that you can have an idea and you can have an initial goal of what your target market is and you know what your objectives are going to be. Um, but that you might find actually this could be applied to something that maybe you hadn't thought of before. I mean, I find even with my own business in the few past few months, I had a target market. I still have that target market in mind, 
but the market I seem to be attracting is one I hadn't really considered initially. And so it's been trying to figure out how to capitalize on that and then make the most of it and see where it goes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So how about peanuts? What is peanuts? It's a completely different product, isn't it? It's a totally different product. Um, so peanut is a Chrome extension and, it, you know, about you know a year and a half ago, I was traveling to Thailand and Taiwan, kind of during the height of the pandemic, uh, and was really surprised to see that Expedia and Booking.com and all these online travel aggregators said nothing about COVID and the travel rules and the travel restrictions. And I found that odd, right? Because obviously, you know, <clears throat> ingress and egress out of countries is. Uh, you know, affected by COVID and the different countries' policies. So it was kind of born out of that. I was thinking, well, why is there nothing that tells me uh, about these travel rules? And it kind of dawned on me that either these travel aggregators are too slow and like too behemoth to actually quickly add something, or maybe they're, you know, I had these two hypotheses, right? Or maybe they are directly incentivized not to kind of show some of this information because less people will actually, you know, book some of these, these flights and, and may kind of do some other stuff. Um, so Peanut is a travel extension and it works for Chrome. And what it does is shows you all of the travel rules and the travel restrictions when you're looking at flights and hotels on Expedia, Booking.com and Google Flights. Um, and it shows you a bunch of other stuff too, but at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is like, how can we meaningfully help you kind of avoid a travel mistake and like buying a, a shitty, a, a poor flight or, you know, buying a, a bad hotel um, and really just like help you make better booking decisions. And it's totally free. And right now it shows visa requirements. We're working on support for hotel. We predict flight delays, uh, but all of it is to really help people book a better trip. That sounds excellent. Sounds really good. Um, so what advice do you have for those now that you've told us about these you know, vast ideas that you've had and how you've been able to implement them? Uh, what advice do you have for those who are thinking about leaving academia or research-based positions and moving into the tech industry? Yeah, so I think a um, couple of things. One, uh, the interviews are typically hard, uh, so prepare a lot for those. Um, I have a bunch of advice on interviewing. Another would be like, you know, get some good practice in. Like, so okay. let's say if you're, you're really excited about these, you know, one or two companies, and I think this is just general advice, like interview at some like tier two, tier three companies first, right? So you feel confident. Uh, so that you can get a couple offers. So you have leverage to negotiate if you do get an offer from a tier one company. Um, and so you kind of have a backup plan, right? Um, mm. So I think, yeah, my advice there for the interviewing would be interview at a bunch of places and then your, you know, your top ones. Um, some people do the opposite. Some people just go for the top ones, but that's not my style. Um and then I would say, like, really try to figure out what it is that you're you're really interested in and, and what you're good at. Um, you know, of course, you can kind of get into the industry and figure it out, but uh, you don't want to be kind of pigeonholed into one specific area if you're not super interested in that. 
So for example, if you don't love like sales, you know, you, you probably don't want to go into the tech industry out of academia with, with that. Um, even if, if it's an easy in, because it could be hard to, to potentially pivot away from that. Um, and then the other thing I would say is like, you know, as I mentioned before, the pace is, is very different. Um, you know, so make sure that you're kind of in an area or an industry that you're kind of excited about. Otherwise, the fulfillment could be a challenge. Uh, you know, coming from academia, right? You know, you're hopefully working on something that's pretty interesting and, and helps you kind of keep focused. Um, but you're going to most likely be making money for somebody else, right? And, and that obviously means that not everything you're going to love. Uh, so choose the, the right company so you can kind of have maximum fulfillment there. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the kind of top things that come to mind. Anything else on your mind that you think might be helpful? I think the, the interview aspects really, um, uh, really crucial. I, I know that there were quite a few companies, um, before I decided to start my own business that, um, I tried to apply for, um, a few I heard back from, but there was definitely uh, a multi-tiered process. Um, you know, you'd have like the phone interview. And then if you mass made the phone interview, you'd talk to your, if you're lucky, your potential boss. And then after that, maybe your potential boss's boss. And then after that, your boss's 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 boss, you know. And I think um, even if it didn't work out, it helped me to get a better feel of whether this was something I wanted. And I found by like the second or third interview, I think we we both quietly knew that maybe this wasn't going to be a great fit. And sometimes it was because the job they had advertised was very different than the job they actually wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're right in, you know, try to figure out what you like. But I would also say talk to as many people as you can in those potential fields. I spent about two years, two, two and a half years talking to as many people as I could from a myriad. I talked to people from the BBC. I talked to I had like five different career perspectives I was thinking about. And then it was almost like going through all those interviews. I finally, in talking to people, I realized that actually maybe this isn't quite exactly what I thought it would be. And then I got to think about well, what is it that I really want to do through process of elimination. And I realized in my case, I needed to create that because it was a space that was missing. But for other people, it could just be right underneath their nose. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah. So, um, just kind of segueing on that a little bit. Sometimes I've actually found the interview process doesn't really map for a lot of jobs, doesn't exactly equate to kind of what you'll be doing day to day, mm. right? Um, especially in tech companies. So the interview process, like you're like, so if you have a PhD, if you've got, you know, you went to a great school, et cetera, that'll get you in the door. It won't help you keep the job okay um, and it you know even in the interview process same deal right like that'll that'll help you get in the door for the interviews on most of the time but at the end of the day they they typically don't care about credentials you know a lot of these companies actually are completely blowing out some of the requirements to even have a bachelor's degree 
Um, you know, one of the kind of smarter persons that I know that I worked with was 18 or 19 years old when he started working at Facebook and he never went to college. Um, so a lot of companies and a lot of people are kind of shifting away from more of a credentials aspect to like, what can you do, right? Like what skills do you have? It's more of a skills-based assessment. And that's been my experience with tech. Um, now, if you have a, a degree and, and you're a researcher and you have academic credentials, that still kind of helps you stand out. Um, but at the end of the day, you still have to, you know, have skills. You still have to kind of go through these problem-solving interviews. Um, and then, like I said, it won't help you keep the job. And a lot of these tech companies, as I mentioned, the kind of the, the performance requirements are high. And they're pretty quick to, to get rid of the people who don't perform. Whereas I think in, in other, you know, industries and in academia and, you know, and some of these other things, um, you know, you'll, you'll see people who hang around for years who are, you know, kind of not performing at a high level. But that's more like weeks at some of these tech companies, which, which can be uh, pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that sort of leads us into our next question, um, because before many many of us, you know, maybe for some listeners, um, you know, started their doctorates or maybe they're thinking about doing doctorates, they were told that having a PhD will open doors and potentially provide better pay in the long run. And I think you've already started to answer that question in some respects. Um, that I don't always think is the case. Um, I know for myself, uh, when I was uh, looking for jobs, I'd been in school forever and I'd been a teacher off and on for over 10 years as well. But um, when I thought about leaving the, the the world of teaching and moving on to something else, the only jobs that were available to me were entry level because from the employer's perspective, I looked like a professional student. And it didn't matter that I had field work experience and I worked at research institutes because at the end of the day, I didn't have experience necessarily specifically in that one job that I was applying for. So, you know, I could be a 30 something and I could be, you know, approaching 40 and working with a 20 something. And it's, it's a very sobering thing to find that maybe this PhD isn't exactly as beneficial and this than the way I was hoping. Um, but that said, would you say that having a PhD, at least in the tech industry, could potentially be a useful asset to have? And if so, how so? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there is no like black or white answer to this. I think it depends on what field the PhD is, is in, first of all, because some are much more marketable and in demand than others. Um, but I think at a high level, it definitely is helpful. And, you know, I've worked with people who, who have PhDs, some outside of their, some that have nothing to do with what job they have at the tech company. Um, you know, some, some folks were lawyers, but they were doing product management. Uh, some folks had psychology PhDs and they were doing user research, right? And that made a ton of sense. Um, the most marketable and in-demand, you know, fields are obvious, are really like engineering. Uh, so if you can do anything like technical on a computer, writing Python scripts, you know, looking at modeling, stats, any sort of math PhD, you know, you're going to be golden. Um, because a lot of those, those skills are, are pretty translatable. And especially with math as well, like, 
people are using, you know, R and, and Stata and all these different like programs to be able to do models, um, you know, that stuff is directly translatable. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a flavor, you know, it depends on the field, depends on, you know, what this person is, is interested in. I think you're right. It's definitely a shame because a lot of the PhDs are very expensive, right? Oh, and that's yeah. a debt to potentially pay off. And if you're being told you're a glorified student, I'm sure that doesn't feel good. No, it definitely doesn't. <laughs> but... Uh, the fact is that, you know, you did a lot of work to get there. You kind of went through that, that whole process and that is very challenging. And if you can do that, you can definitely start your own company. You can definitely kind of make it in the more, you know, fast paced, high performance tech world, in my opinion. Um, but something that would help with that, I think is really like, having either like a side hustle or some sort of like portfolio where you're able to demonstrate how you can generate and create impact outside of that PhD. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's in a specific area, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll kind of equate to, to that kind of area that you're, you're kind of going for. Um, but, Anything you can do to kind of help the employer see that, you know, you're, you're not just really kind of this person, you have all of these different, you know, expertise and, and skills, and the PhD is kind of a manifestation of that, but it is not the singular thing about you. Mm. Because they, they will just see that PhD, for example, in whatever it is that you have, and they might only focus on that. But if you have side hustles, if you have other things that you've been doing, you know, you speak at different things, you, um, you've created some of these, these other projects, they can start to kind of, and then you paint a vision, right, of how you're going to come in and help this company and, you know, unlock these new areas. They're going to say, huh, that PhD is really an asset. This person can really take an ambiguous, complex area and figure out how to make sense of it. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's excellent advice. So a bit of a cheeky question since we're here, since you work in Silicon Valley. Uh, why do you think so many positions in your field pay up to six figure salaries? And do you think that is achievable for somebody coming in from academia? So coming in from academia, 100% yes, I do think it's achievable. Um, again, it's it's all about, you know, selling yourself and, and kind of figuring out where, you know, where you're going to be. Um, but to answer the first part of your question, you know, all of, a lot of it comes down to, to the business model, right? I mean, mm. let's face it, for a lot of academia, there's not a whole lot of money involved in the output of that research, right? There's, there's, no, there's nothing being sold. There's not a lot of buyers, right? The buyer is essentially the scientific community, the academic community, and a lot of that research is free, right? It's like peer-reviewed, and then, you know, you kind of put it out there. Um, but oftentimes like there's not a lot of buyers. And so, you know, it comes down to kind of economics and, and, and business essentially, um, yeah, supply and demand, definitely supply and demand. Yeah. And, uh, in, in tech, there's a lot of buyers, right? There's billions of us consuming and buying things and trying to stay entertained or, or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think it, 
kind of boils down to that. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise that some of the, the companies that pay the, the most kind of make the most money. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So again, there was something you'd mentioned kind of earlier in our conversation, but I kind of want to throttle back to it just a little bit. So we talked about work expectations, right? And um, you had said um, that there's long hours and that academics may have to get used to working autonomously and that the pressure in performance is very high. But having been in academia for 10 years, I'll be honest, it sounds like every doctoral program, every academic position I've ever heard of. So how is working in the tech industry different potentially from the academic experience? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the autonomous aspect um, in academia, were you mostly working kind of by yourself or was it pretty close? 100% by myself. That's one of the biggest differences, okay. right? Um, you do have to, you know, figure out how to have impact and do all of that. But again, you have a lot of other people within these kind of corporate environments that you have to, to you have to work with. There's a lot of stakeholders, right? You have peers, you've got managers, you've got other teams. You're going to have to be um, really good at, you know, kind of sharing your own story within that company so people know what you're working on a but also you're able to get stuff done through them and with them right so there's a lot of um collaboration that that can happen especially depending on the type of role that you have um so you really need to be able to to work effectively with others i think that is super super important um, yes, the hours are long, um, but they don't how have long? to be. So like, how, what are we talking like 60? Yeah, hours? like I would typically, so I think it depends on the company, right? Um, I would typically, you know, work weekends a bit at Facebook, like definitely on Sunday. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe like 9am to like, you know, 7pm every day. Um, but nothing like too crazy, although some startups, right? Like you're, you're kind of almost working 24 seven and it just really depends on the role. Uh, but it sounds like in academia, it's, it's probably quite a bit more than that. Like working till midnight, 1am sometimes, but I think it gets back to your point. Um, it depends on the person. It depends on the work that's required. It depends on work-life balance, which we can get into in a second. Um, there's yeah. a lot of factors. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is like you're getting paid, right, as, right. At, a tech, at a corporate company, right, which, uh, you, you know, you're getting paid very handsomely in many cases. Um, so, you know, that's also the difference between academia and the startup world, too, right? Often you, you either have no salary or in my case, I was spending my own savings before I even raised a penny of outside external funding. Um, so not only are you not getting paid, but you're spending your own money in, in many cases. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, again, it's, you know, it's pretty similar in that regard, but, you know, within the tech industry as well, like since performance is a big thing, there's going to be pretty frequent reviews 
you know, you have like typically a review every six months. Now a lot of them are moving towards a year, uh, but you'll have multiple check-ins, you know, and, and kind of performance conversations throughout the year. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of an important, important thing. Um, anything else that you want to touch on in that? I'm trying to think of like, uh, well, I think actually if we could kind of dive into the work life balance, cause this is quite important. Um, especially when we think about how many people have had to start working from home and they have to maybe balance other personal responsibilities a bit more strategically than they had in the past. Um, so I'd be really interested in knowing from your perspective, what is the work-life balance for people who work in the tech industry? And is it even possible to obtain, especially now, I think? Yeah. You know, I think Bezos said it's less about work-life balance and more about life-work balance. Ooh, um, I like that. Yeah, we like that. But also people are like, eh, that doesn't sound so great. You know, a lot of people... Um, you know, don't uh, live to work. They work to live. Um, I hate to answer every question with, or every answer with it depends, but it does. No, but I think uh, it's still important. Sometimes there isn't a direct answer and that's worth knowing. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, look, you know, if you want to get ahead, if you, you really um, uh, care about your career and, and you want to keep getting promotions, you know, you're going to have to put in the work. There's just no way, there's no shortcut. Um, and especially now, you know, uh, with working from home, but more so just like being connected, having our phones everywhere um, at tech companies, like literally the other difference here, right? I think in academia, you're, you're kind of like uh, using a lot of, uh, a lot of, you're writing a lot right? You're taking notes, you're, you're capturing data, et cetera. Like a lot of that is kind of contained on your computer, but in a tech company, everything you do is collaboration is being shared out is getting feedback from your manager, your peers, you know, you're posting in different groups, trying to kind of generate some excitement and not around a new project. You're emailing tons of people. Um, your work is being shared on, on, you know, the, the big screen in front of hundreds of people during the all hands every couple quarters. So like everything is being shared out, which is very different. Um, so, you know, that means you're going to be working and, and you're going to be kind of getting pinged potentially at, at kind of all hours, especially with like this work, this kind of global mindset really. Um, you know, you might be working with people who are on a different time zone. Uh, yeah, I do that all the time. Like right yeah, now. I mean, look at us, right? It's <laughs> 9 a.m. for me and, you know, 5 p.m. for you. Um, yeah. So, like, I think that really plays into it. And I don't think it's only a tech thing, but it's certainly amplified in tech. But every industry now, it's just like Slack, messaging, messenger, email. We're all just super plugged in. And that certainly doesn't help. But I, I really like just generally across a lot of industries, people are talking about wellness, you know, they're, you know, really engaged in, in work-life balance and people just generally don't want to work for a company that's going to trash their, their work-life balance and not care about their home life. Mm. Um, and I don't want to segue too much into that, but that's what I think has been really interesting from the whole work from home 
kind of movement is like everybody realizes like, hey, I don't have to commute and be planted in a cubicle to do good work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I do think it, it is here to stay, but that does mean we're going to have a lot of challenges kind of setting boundaries and, and managing the work-life balance. True. So there's a question I'd like to ask that we didn't talk about before, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, would you say that your job is fun? Working in the tech industry is fun? Yes, I would. Yeah. How so? I think mostly because like the people, like everyone you work with, uh, typically at a, at a solid tech company, you know, it's, it's not easy to, to get into these companies. Um, it's not easy to, to just make a, a six figure salary and, and have fun doing it. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's the people that you work with and kind of the, the product or the, the space that you're, you're in. And for me, I really love uh, the people I work with, but also like the consumer tech industry. Um, it's really fun and exciting to like see somebody post about something that you launched on Twitter and say, oh my God, I love this feature. Or, you know, in the case of, of SimTech, like, you know, hear how uh, people are, are using it and, and seeing the real impact. So I think in tech, like a lot of these products, right, make a ton of money and that's because they affect a ton of people. So it's pretty, it's pretty damn cool to see that your thing that you worked on is touching hundreds of millions or even billions of, of people. Uh, but I've just generally found that like the outlook of both the people and generally the companies in tech are extremely progressive and forward thinking, right? Change is constant and everybody is like super excited about bettering themselves and giving and receiving feedback which I love. Um, and I just love the like, and maybe it's on the surface, but there's like a merit, merit, uh, meritocracy kind of aspect to it where like, again, it doesn't really matter who you are, where you came from, what credentials you have, what color, you know, skin you have, how old you are, what gender you are, nothing. Right. What doesn't matter. Like, you know, if your family's been in this business for generations, right. Uh, it's, it's more about like, what can you do? What can you achieve? How can you, um, kind of better the, the community, the product, the service or whatever it is. And I, I really love that because, um, you know, I always personally felt like I was never able to, to kind of get those credentials and kind of be that, you know, rock star, um, uh, person in education, right? Like I found it challenging to get amazing grades, at least in high school. Um, and, you know, I was never going to be getting accepted into Stanford or Harvard. And so, you know, being able to kind of be a part of a community where I'm able to, to kind of have an impact without needing some of those entry requirements. And a lot, a lot of times those entry requirements, again, have nothing to do with the actual job. Um, was was really refreshing and i've seen that play out again and again and you know i've seen people reinvent themselves and you know get into one role and then years later make a change and and do a different role and you don't really see that in a lot of other industries you know hmm. um 
people may kind of rise in their career ladder, but there's not a whole lot of kind of role changing. You know, if you think about doctors, you think about lawyers and some of these other professions. Um, but in tech, it's a little bit more fungible. You know, people can kind of try out different things and and have fun along the way. So I think that's what really makes it exciting is uh, there's a lot of change. There's a lot of progressive kind of outlook. And it generally, at least mostly on the surface, is really welcoming and, and really tolerant of all people and all backgrounds. Cool. Well, let I before we kind of end, I guess, because that really, I think for a lot of people, there is that interest. I know definitely in the tech industry, but it's that trying to figure out like how, how do I get in? What does that look like? So if we could wrap up, what are the most important things to think about when making a career transition to the tech industry? And maybe we can kind of tie that into the whole like, how do you how do you prepare yourself if you decide this is something you want to do? Yeah, and I'm going to kind of make this general advice too. But I think the first thing is, it takes time. You know, I typically tell people like, from the minute you decide you, you want to kind of get a new job or like switch or whatever, it's probably going to take anywhere from three to, to six months really to to start getting offers come in and, and really land something. You know, obviously it's a generalization, but that's been my experience. Um, and then the other thing is like, really don't discount the interviews because uh, obviously you have to get in, you've got to get those offers. And uh, there are so many resources online now for pretty much every major role at a tech company where you can learn how the interviews work, you can do uh, mock interviews with your friends and peers, and there's actually services that you can pay for, which kind of help you uh, prepare. Um, mm. So definitely take advantage of those. I mean, companies like Glassdoor, you can go and look at the interview questions for um, you know some of the most common technology companies. So do that, but also like prepare by kind of making up your own as well. Like put yourself in their shoes. Like what would, you know, what would be really important to, to kind of know what are some of the questions they might ask, mm -hmm. right? How can you think about their company in, in different ways? Mm -hmm. So prep big time for the interviews, um, give yourself enough time and, you know, let yourself have, uh, you know, the, the, the time necessary to kind of get through the process so that you have the right expectations. Um, and then, you know, don't be discouraged. It, it takes everybody, especially during a career transition. I mean, that's a major life change. It's a, you know, you talk about pivots, like that's a huge, massive pivot. And so it's probably going to take a lot longer. It's not going to go as well as, you know, you'd hope. Um, but you just can't get discouraged. You've, you know, got to keep moving forward. And um, when things don't work, change it up you know, try to analyze, okay, why isn't this working? Am I not, did I not give it enough time? Did I not interview with enough people? Did I prepare poorly? You know, you, you have to try to analyze things before you do these pivots. Don't just kind of randomly pivot uh, after like one or two rejections, in my opinion. I think you really need to assess like, you know, what was the kind of root cause of that? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. 
Well, I've got to say, uh, that's from it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Brady again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional links to today's topic will be available in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like, subscribe, and if you're listening on YouTube, ring the bell. We love to hear from our followers, so if you have an idea you'd like for us to discuss, or if you'd like to be on the show, feel free to write us directly at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.